lots of Republicans voted for me in the Senate to substitute its judgment for the people in picking a president. They are ready for someone to take the reins. We need more engagement in this public discourse and not less. Just listen. I think that's what I need to do is just really listen. What's up, Tennessee? Welcome to TriStar Talk. I'm Jeff Patterson, here to give you the latest on everything happening in the TriStar state. If you haven't yet, don't forget to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TriStar Talk. Restaurants are open in Tennessee in most of the state, not in not in some of the major counties, including Davidson and Shelby. Retail should be opening tomorrow with the guidelines that Governor Lee recommended, the occupancy will be limited to 50%. But then again, their guidelines, the governor didn't actually want to tell people to do certain things that experts say will help slow the spread of the coronavirus. But, you know, Governor Lee is not alone. There were more protests at the state capitol, and those protesters were demanding a full reopening of everything. There were signs, including... We want our sports back. One protester says that folks calling 311 to report local stay-at-home order violations are Nazis. The main guest speaker of the event was Robert Barnes. He's the attorney for conspiracy theorist and overall nut Alex Jones. He likened stay-at-home orders to Nazi concentration camps, saying something along the lines of, yeah, when they started the, the concentration camps, they called it a quarantine to something ridiculous like that. Tennessee U.S. Senate candidate Byron Bush was also at the rally, not wearing a mask, but shaking hands, trying to get support. One of the men that he was seen talking to was wearing a shirt representing the, the three percenters. They are an American far-right militia movement and paramilitary group. The group advocates gun ownership rights and resistance to the U.S. federal government's involvement in local affairs. It derives its name from the disputed claim that only 3% of American colonists took up arms against Great Britain during the American Revolution. The Southern Poverty Law Center categorized the three percenters as an anti-government group. And these these rallies are dangerous. It's It poses a risk to the people that are there. But as we've discussed before, they are very much a manufactured political fight. Large Republican donors are helping organize these rallies to create an issue, to create a conflict that, quite frankly, shouldn't exist. It's a global pandemic, and when we're listening to scientists, medical experts, economists, they're telling us the truth, and these people are just trying to distract and confuse people, to, to polarize people in an already very polarized political time. And the world is making fun of us. Representative Steve Cohen pointed that out. He retweeted an article from an Irish writer, Fenton O'Toole, who said, The grotesque spectacle of the president openly inciting people, some of them armed, to take to the streets to oppose the restrictions that save lives is the manifestation of a political death wish. What are supposed to be daily briefings on the crisis, demonstrative of national unity in the face of a shared challenge, have been used by Trump merely to sow confusion and division. They provide a recurring horror show in which all of the neuroses that haunt the American subconscious dance naked on live TV. Will American prestige ever recover from this shameful episode? The U.S. went into the coronavirus crisis with immense advantages, precious weeks of warning about what was coming. The world's best concentration of medical and scientific expertise, effectively limitless financial resources, a military complex with stunning logistical capacity, 
and most of the world's leading technology corporations. Yet, it managed to make itself the global epicenter of the pandemic. He raises a very, very good point, and it's even even worse now knowing that Trump was being given briefings daily in early January about the problems that the coronavirus would pose, and he was well aware of Chinese misinformation. So to know all of that, to do nothing for months, and then to go back and say, oh, it's all because China was misleading people and that's why the response is bad? No. He's just not taking responsibility. If he knew they were lying in January, why take them at their word? <laughs> why praise them as he did a number of times? He just wanted to avoid making himself look bad because he doesn't want to cost himself re-election. But at a certain point, it's it's not so much about what, what should have been done. It's what we need to do right now. And this is what we need to do here in Tennessee to prevent more deaths. This is the leadership we need from Lee. Doctors on the front lines say that we need to ramp up contact tracing. It usually takes four or five people over three days to do one full contact trace on average. So we need far more people. We need to test constantly. We need to isolate people with suspected infection from families. And that one's really, really tough because in some people don't have multi-room homes. If you're in an urban area of housing is expensive, you have a one-bedroom apartment and your family lives there, you can't really separate your family. Some people have called for more money to be put in for hotels so that people can isolate that way. We need to protect healthcare workers. There cannot be a shortage of PPE, of equipment to treat people. The people on the front lines need to stay healthy. They need all the supplies they can get to keep providing life-saving medical attention to people who need it. And we need, as Tennesseans, to all be on board. We need to be wearing masks in public. We need to be staying six feet apart. We need to be washing our hands. If we're coughing, cough into your arm. Don't cough on people. That's on us to make sure that we are doing what we can do. And of course, we need clear, honest communication from our leaders. Governor Lee has not been honest. He is constantly misstating what the numbers are. He keeps saying that there's a downward trend, but the numbers aren't showing that. I understand that he would want Tennesseans to have an optimistic view of the situation, but what they need is an honest view. They need data-driven decisions being made, not ones that are just based on the hope that everything gets better. Some health experts are saying that Congress needs to step up and add an additional $46.5 billion on three public needs. Andy Slavitt, he ran Medicare under Obama. He said that $12 billion needs to be used to help expand the contact tracing workforce. And officials estimate that the workforce needs to increase by 180,000 contact tracers. I saw that New York was trying to triple their contract tracers. $4.5 billion to use vacant hotels so that infected and exposed people without a place to self-isolate have somewhere they can go so they don't spread the virus. And $30 billion to offer 18 months of income support, a per-person stipend of $50 a day. And it would be like jury duty for those who are voluntarily self-isolating. This is important and we need to not be misled by numbers that we see that might give us the impression that we should relax our orders, that we should ease up on how we're reacting to this virus. And it's simply not true. Major areas in Tennessee, including Nashville, have tried to remain closed because they want to contain this. They don't want to see the virus continue to spread. But there, there's been pretty strong opposition to Nashville doing that. And more recently, there was a very interesting AG opinion that came out from Slattery. It was submitted by Randy McNally, the lieutenant governor. So you can you can start to guess why they might have been looking for this opinion. 
Here's the issue that was presented to the AG. Because of the COVID-19 health crisis, the governor has exercised his authority to declare a state of emergency in Tennessee and issue a series of executive orders governing the state's emergency response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Do these executive orders serve as the exclusive regulation of the state's emergency management in response to the pandemic? And to what extent, if any, may local government entities take action or issue orders that conflict with the governor's executive orders? It was the AG's opinion that the governor's executive orders have the force and effect of law. So local government entities may not take actions that are either more restrictive or less restrictive than the executive orders governing the state's emergency response to COVID-19. He says it is well established that local governments may not adopt ordinances which infringe the spirit of state law or are repugnant to the general policy of the state. Local governments cannot effectively nullify state law on the same subject by enacting ordinances that ignore applicable state laws that grant rights that state law denies, or that deny rights that state law grants. He goes on, local governments may not act at cross-purposes with state law on the same subject, and a local action that conflicts with the law of the state may not stand. And he cites another case that, that said, municipal ordinances in conflict with and repugnant to in state law of a general character and statewide application are universally held to be invalid. In this instance, the governor has issued emergency management orders that among other things, require all persons in Tennessee to stay at home unless engaging in essential activity or essential services and place restrictions on social gatherings and business operations. Those orders are set to expire on April 30th. The governor could extend all or parts of these orders, or he could let them expire. Regardless of the choice he makes, political subdivisions may not take any action that undermines the executive order. Thus, a political subdivision may not take any action that is either more or less restrictive as to the subjects addressed in the orders. Such a restriction would be at cross-purposes with the orders and therefore constitute an impermissible legal conflict. Moreover, political subdivisions are without power to issue emergency management orders that conflict with the governor's executive orders. And while the General Assembly has authorized local health departments to adopt regulations more stringent or restrictive than those provided by state law or regulation, and this rule explicitly contemplates the closure of establishments and orders for isolation, the governor's emergency executive's order may preempt a local health department's more restrictive order because the governor's authority to, quote, assume direct operational control over all or any part of the emergency management functions within the state allows the governor to order the Department of Health to take action contrary to the lawfully issued orders of local health officials, in which case the conflicting local orders must yield to the governor's orders. And on the other hand, the governor may exercise his emergency powers to expressly authorize or recognize the authority of county health departments to take action that may otherwise be inconsistent with his executive orders. Just as the governor may exercise his authority to delegate a local government entity or to the local health department, such powers as the governor may deem prudent. So what this really is all about is the governor is not going to want Memphis, Nashville to remain on lockdown. He knows that these major urban areas are a huge part of the state's economy, and he doesn't like that. He, When he says the state's opening, he wants the state to open. He doesn't want Nashville to continue to restrict businesses, to continue to tell people to stay at home. He doesn't want that. And it's a real shame because Mayor Cooper has made it abundantly clear 
that he is prioritizing the health of the people of Nashville. And while the AG's opinion isn't isn't law, it's a pretty clear indication of what Lee might try to do if Nashville wants to continue a stay at home order on its own. It would be a, a legal fight. I don't know when a decision would be reached, but it could be moot because Nashville is indicating that it wants to be able to open sometime in early May if the numbers are looking good. And I hope they are. That would be a great sign. But as we were saying earlier, that does not mean that we need to ease up on the way that we're treating this virus. Just because businesses are going to open, just because you're allowed to go somewhere, doesn't mean you shouldn't wear a mask. Doesn't mean you shouldn't stand six feet apart. Doesn't mean you shouldn't wash your hands constantly. So we'll see how that plays out. Governor Lee isn't one really for taking taking bold moves. So I'd be surprised if he really wanted to wage war with the local governments who are better equipped and have a better understanding of what's actually going on in their cities than the governor is. Something we brought up in other episodes is the abortion fight that's been going on here in Tennessee. A suit was appealed to the Sixth Circuit and a panel of federal judges ruled two to one that Tennessee must allow the constitutional right to abortion during the coronavirus pandemic. And here's what here's what the judges said. And here, although we have great respect for the challenges Tennessee faces as it responds to the novel public health crisis, we agree with the district court that the state's response in this one respect unduly curtailed constitutional liberty and that judicial intervention was thus warranted. I think this was definitely the right decision from the courts. It's it's a constitutional right. It's a medical procedure and it can't be unduly burdened in these times. In Congress, there has been the idea floated around, I think it was Nancy Pelosi saying, uh, that there may be more money out there for people, that they are considering a minimum income, a guaranteed income for people, saying that it's worthy of attention at least. There are a lot of people that are in need of financial assistance right now, and they're not getting it from the government. And other countries have really stepped up. They've provided far more benefits to people in the midst of this pandemic. And I think it would be a good thing for, for Congress to start sending paychecks to people that will help the economy. Unfortunately, Congress has been more focused on the business aspect of things, getting businesses up and running. And, and it's come with its own problems. But the one-time check of $1,200 that Congress sent out was good, but it's not enough. And a lot of people call it a stimulus. It's not a stimulus because it's not meant to to just boost the economy. It's meant to help people get by. And more is needed. Senator Josh Hawley has proposed that the federal government pay 80% of workers' wages up to the national median wage until the crisis ends. And that's similar to what European governments were doing. And some Democrats have offered proposals to cover wages or expand individual payments. Uh, One congresswoman introduced a bill to cover wages for workers earning salaries up to $100,000 and cover essential business expenses such as rent. Tim Ryan of Ohio called for ensuring that adults making less than $130,000 annually would receive at least $2,000 per month, which would be which would be a great idea and it really would go a long way with helping our economy get back to where we need it to be. The paycheck protection program isn't enough and more than that it is disproportionately benefiting white men and is not doing nearly enough to help minorities and women. Many diverse business owners applied for loans through the Small Business Administration only to come up empty because they either didn't qualify or the funds had been exhausted by the time their applications were processed. Based on how the program is structured, it's estimated that upwards of 
90% of businesses owned by people of color have been or will likely be completely shut out of the Paycheck Protection Program. Roughly 95% of Black-owned businesses, 91% of Latino-owned businesses, 91% of Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander-owned businesses, and 75% of Asian-owned businesses stand close to no chance of receiving a loan through a mainstream bank or credit union. And these warnings came out in early April, so Congress was well aware And one obstacle for the minority business owners is that many of the banks participating in the low interest forgivable loan program are only issuing loans to existing clients because that speeds up the approval process. And and businesses owned by people of color are less likely to have commercial banking relationships. If If participating banks are requiring that applicants have a credit relationship to already have some type of loan out, that cuts out most of those businesses. And major banks that offered the, the SBA-backed loans, including Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, prioritized larger loan applications, and they say it's to, to maximize the loan origination fees and their own profits. And this alleged prioritizing is a problem for minority and women-owned businesses because, on average, minority and women-owned businesses have 30% fewer employees compared to male or white-owned businesses, and their average sales are 50 to 90% of their counterparts. So the value of the loans that they were seeking would have been smaller and thus not worthy of the time of the banks. And it's been reported that mid-sized commercial banks were just late to give out loans, some not even until the funds ran out. So it stands that the PPP was structured to approve loans specifically to white male business owners, as it turns out. And so that's the priorities of, of Congress It's not to help true small business owners. It's not to help people that are struggling the most. It's certainly not to help black and brown people or women. It's to maintain the status quo and something has to change. We need more relief. We need to continue to demand from our representatives that they act. And if they don't, we will vote them out. That's it for the show today. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't yet, follow us at TriStar Talk. I'm Jeff Patterson. Thanks for listening.